Gateway Sciences, leading the human race to inner space. Welcome to the Gateway Sessions podcast, where we discuss the science of psychedelics, mental health, optimal human wellness, longevity, cutting-edge nutrition, and more science-based tools for improving your life. I'm Ariana Summer, and I'm the Global Innovation and Research Leader for Gateway Sciences. The modern state of psychedelics is exciting as well as daunting. What does it mean to invest in the business of psychedelics? And how is the legal landscape evolving after decades of research into compounds that show promise for trauma-based mental health disorders, addictions, and more? How can and must this field be navigated ethically and with high integrity? And what implications does the profound cultural shift we're currently experiencing with regards to psychedelics have? Today, we have Marik Hazan, a thought leader and venture capitalist in the psychedelic space, joining us on Gateway Sessions. Marik is an engineer, advocate, entrepreneur, and investor who has worked across counterculture industries. He founded the first incubator focused on psychedelic startups and runs the world's largest psychedelics conference, Psyched. He is the founding partner of Tabula Rasa Ventures, the premier accelerator fund for early-stage psychedelic companies, and is the CEO of Energia Holdings, Inc., an organization building the future of health by turning healthcare's blind spots into preventative care solutions. None of the content in this podcast constitutes medical advice or should be construed as a recommendation to use psychedelics. There are psychological, physical, and sometimes legal risks with such usage. Please consult your doctor before considering anything we discuss in this episode. Marik, welcome to Gateway Sessions. It is such a pleasure to connect with you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on, Ariana. I really appreciate it. I've very much been looking forward to this conversation. Love what you're doing in the space and love your philosophy, the thoughts and the actions you put forth. Something that I'd like to touch upon first is something you said that psychedelics are a tiny piece of a much larger change that's happening in society and that it most likely is the biggest cultural shift ever experienced by humanity. Can you expound on that, please? <laughs> yeah, definitely. A big thing to expand upon. But yeah, I, again, I haven't lived for several millennia, so it's hard for me to compare to other cultural shifts that have happened. But yeah, I think that as people talk a lot about how quickly technology is developing, and I think that the you know last several decades of entrepreneurs have been focused specifically on those shifts in technology and the, the rapid development of tech. That's actually the world that I started in was a lot of tech and growing up was just oftentimes around individuals who praise tech for its innovation. Over these last few decades, though, I think for in my life, over the course of my life, I've found that actually what fulfills me most and what I think is another trend that is rapidly, that is showing rapid shifts in humanity is a shift of culture. And the way people are thinking about themselves, society are rapidly changing. It's interesting to like look back at certain films or literature from, I don't know, a nearly 100 years ago or even 60 years back and see that there's quite a lot of similarities. But I do think that there are very tangible differences that we can see today. And I think that one of those large differences is how we approach health and healthcare. And I think that 
Like, yes, there's fewer people who are necessarily believing in organized religion. There's fewer individuals who are choosing more mainstream kind of default lifestyles, whether that's traditional forms of family and relationships to traditional careers, things like that. But I think health is actually something that a lot of individuals are also really changing their perspective on. And that's everything to do with kind of a general distrust of institutions at large. So that might be of media, of government, but also of our healthcare systems. And then also this large belief that we can take health into our own hands and be able to find solutions to the health issues that we're facing. And so I think that psychedelics is a really large piece of that. And a part of that conversation is the conversation around taking health into your own hands as well as the conversation of, do we now have the ability to explore consciousness in a way that we just have never been able to do before and actually have the language to explore consciousness? And yeah, there's many different organizations that are currently working specifically on the consciousness side of psychedelics, even completely removed from healthcare. And that's also really interesting kind of culture shift is having more kind of psychonauts in the world, psychedelics or not, that are just beginning to think through theories of consciousness in a much more developed way than I think we've ever been able to before. Absolutely. Thank you for your perspective. And I also like that you mentioned this exploring consciousness, whether it's via psychedelics or not, because of course, there's many other modalities, how you can expand your mind and deep dive into your own psyche, whether it is meditation or even breath work, as it is taught by some spiritual leaders around the world. And I find it beautiful that this cultural shift truly is rooted in a shift of consciousness. You are the founding partner of Tabula Rasa Ventures, which is the premier accelerator fund for early stage psychedelic companies. Please tell us about the mission of Tabula Rasa. Yeah, I think that there's probably a million missions. So I'll generally give you an idea of what we're aiming to create in the world. I think for anyone who's been around the world of incubators and accelerators, if that language is not familiar to folks who are watching, typically both incubators and accelerators, they work with early stage, high growth startups. And so unlike a traditional small business that might be a mom and pop shop that's maybe baking pizzas, opening up a restaurant, maybe owning a motel, these are really companies that are meant to scale, grow, and be able to create global impact through their growth. And so what incubators and accelerators do is they either create those companies from scratch or they help those companies develop develop and evolve to a place where they're sustainable and they're able to scale and grow in a healthy way uh, and be able to yeah, uh, impact the world at, at a global level. So a lot of what we do is we look at companies that are specifically innovating on health in one way or another. Most of what we've done to date has been focused specifically on psychedelics and psychedelic therapeutics. Psychedelic assisted therapy is a holistic field, but we're also very interested in blind spots of the healthcare industry, other aspects of health that people are not paying attention to, that the health systems are not paying attention to, but could be providing humanity with some of its biggest improvements in health. So really for us, the mission is to be able to provide financial support as well as our time and energy to help founders who are building that future be able to be successful in building these companies that will grow to scale and be able to not just impact their local towns or communities, but be able to impact a meaningful percentage of the seven plus billion people that are on our earth today. And so really that's what we're working towards and trying to provide support in. And we're really hoping to do that through a method of generally what's called multi-stakeholder alignment. For us, a core foundational belief is that 
when we're actually building businesses or helping to support the building of businesses, the best way to make those businesses sustainable for the long term and develop in the healthiest way is to actually practice what is called multi-stakeholder alignment, which is looking at the multiple stakeholders within an ecosystem and being able to be in relationship with them in a way where you can gain understanding of what are their specific needs. So in the psychedelic space, running a venture firm, you of course have to understand the needs of your investors. But from our perspective, you also have to understand the needs of the entrepreneurs, of the researchers, of the therapists, of the advocacy groups, of the indigenous community members, of the policymakers, and everyone else who is involved in allowing for this ecosystem to grow in a healthy way. And there's some really great literature out there, Conscious Capitalism by John Mackey, who started Whole Foods and many other books, effective, the Effective Altruism Movement, that all talk about in one form or another multi-stakeholder alignment and how that can actually feed into sustainable, more profitable businesses in the long run, instead of the several decades long pump and really trying to just focus on profit, which we've seen from the high tech world. And then all of a sudden this humongous crash in stock and value when those companies ultimately lose the trust of their stakeholders, oftentimes their customers or the general public. And we've seen that kind of in many of the large tech companies that are now suffering in this in this climate. And we'll see, yeah, we'll see how that evolves over the next few years. Mm -hmm. I love your approach. And I also really like your focus. So the psychedelics and also the blind spots of the healthcare system, I'd like to get into both. Let's start with psychedelics. What are some of the misconceptions about psychedelics? And what would you like for people to know? Yeah, so I think that there's... Um... Uh, it depends on yeah who which kind of like community you're talking to because multiple communities have different types of misconceptions right there's like the psychedelic naive crowd that knows nothing about psychedelics that have the misconceptions of maybe psychedelics being burning holes in your brain or being sounds that make people go insane things like that. And for those individuals, I would recommend reading How to Change Your Minds, or there's other books also just focused on trauma that kind of just hint at psychedelic therapy, like Body Keeps the Score. There's many different films and documentaries now that are being made that are basically fundamentally showing that psychedelics are some of the most effective compounds and their associated therapies to be able to help reduce different mood disorders, different um, ailments. And not just we're, what we're learning now is it's not just mood disorders. It's not just their ability to lower cases of depression and anxiety and PTSD. It's also possibly things that are inflammation related. So possibly in Alzheimer's, we've diligenced companies that are trying to address obesity as an epidemic with psychedelic assisted therapy, hinting at the fact that uh, a large portion of the obese population actually uh, has a connection with their psychology in that um, in battling that uh, illness. And so there's a lot of different things that can be treated. So for the completely psychedelic naive, these compounds work. We have a lot of data with regards to how they work. They work in conjunction with therapy, which is super interesting. So they don't necessarily, they may be effective. We're still collecting data on recurring use and taking a small dose on a regular basis. But what we've seen from the actual data is that actually higher doses of these compounds, when you take them with a therapy involved, so you prepare for that psychedelic experience. Afterwards, you have multiple therapeutic sessions to basically process what you experience that's really leading to immense outcomes for individuals in regards to reducing their their ailments of sorts. If you're talking about misconceptions for people who are maybe more part of the cannabis movement or are psychedelic aware, there's a lot of kind of misinformation about psychedelics being completely okay to take in any quantity all the time, that there's no harm that can happen, that nothing nothing can go wrong, et cetera, or 
yeah, like many of these types of sentiments that we saw in the cannabis movement, that as we collect more data on cannabis, and as we collect more data on psychedelics, we're also learning that it's not necessarily something that might be good to be using on a regular basis. Maybe it is something that we should just keep high dose, maybe a couple times a year as part of a certain regimen that is integrated into therapy. And there are specific harms that can come from psychedelics. And also the compounds that are grouped into the psychedelic class, but aren't traditional psychedelics. For instance, ketamine and MDMA are not traditional psychedelics. Ketamine is a dissociative, MDMA is a taxogen. But for the purpose of the industry, for the for-profit sector, and pretty much most people's general knowledge, they're also categorized as psychedelics. But there are significant problems that can come with both those compounds as well as even traditional psychedelics. With ketamine, you can develop use disorders with it. It can be addictive. We've seen uh, an uptick in individuals having to go to rehab after um, signing up for multiple ketamine services, at-home ketamine delivery, multiple ketamine clinics. There's no centralized database, so people can actually get access in multiple places. That's a really large problem that the industry is trying to work through right now. So there's use disorders that can develop from something like ketamine. There are certain psychedelics like ibogaine, where it's extremely essential for you to have an EKG before you go in because of how heavy it can be on the heart. If you have a predisposition to schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, it's important to understand that and know that and probably stay away from psychedelics. While we don't have any evidence showing that psychedelics can actually create bipolar or schizophrenia in individuals, we do know that certain types of bipolar or certain types of schizophrenia can be triggered by psychedelic states. And so that's just important to keep in mind. And we don't have enough research to say what types of bipolar, what types of schizophrenia can benefit from psychedelic use or which ones will actually get worse. So just important to stay away at this point in time. So I think that that's on both sides, the misconceptions. They're not perfect in every single way, and they're not harmful in the ways that we previously believed. And we're, we just need to, I think, be a little bit more in tune and open to the nuances and complexities of interacting with compounds that change consciousness and let you interact with your personal version of God, right? It's uh, This is a big thing that we're getting ourselves into. So just important to understand that nuance. Mm, 100% Marik and thank you for bringing that up and of course more research is allowed and the more we can deeply look into all of these different compounds the greater our knowledge base will get and the more fine-tuning and appropriate administration of these compounds can happen. When we're talking about investing in psychedelics we're talking about investing in basically in a field that is highly regulated and a lot of these compounds uh, still need FDA approval. Can you tell us about some of the challenges and pitfalls with regards to investing into psychedelics and how we also can overcome them or just be aware of them? Yeah. So it depends on what part of the psychedelic ecosystem you're also looking to invest in. When we talk about our thesis to LPs and to the investors who invest in us to be able to deploy their capital, typically the way that we phrase it is we invest across three buckets. We look at drug development, we look at infrastructure, and we look at technology. And so with infrastructure and technology, there's actually not many regulatory hurdles for most things that you need to be worried about. So two thirds of our investments that we're looking at, like there's not really any sort of regulatory piece because you're not actually even looking at the psychedelic compound. So some of the companies that we've invested in include WavePaths, which is a company that has an AI assisted tool to specifically handle the music component of psychedelic assisted therapy. So based on ther therapist feedback and patient feedback, it can actually layer music to be able to advance patient outcomes or be able to improve patient outcomes based on the music that's playing. 
Um, and then Anthea is a company that we just invested in. They are the first company to do health insurance reimbursement for psychedelic assisted therapy. So that's super exciting to us. So both of those companies actually don't necessarily even have some of the regulatory hurdles that the drug development process might and the drug development bucket of ours does. And on the regulatory side, it's interesting because a lot of people come into the psychedelic space believing that there's this kind of state-by-state policy that you're up against. There's all these kind of pieces from cannabis that you need to be scared of or just aware of at least. And really what we found is that actually the psychedelic space functions very differently than cannabis, especially at, at this point at least. We'll see how it develops. But really, when you look at cannabis, what you're really looking at is like the best comparable is like if there was a magic mushrooms industry or a psychedelic mushrooms industry, those would be similar for several different reasons. First off, you're talking about just one plant-based psychedelic compound. It's not even the psychedelic compound, it's actually the full plant, right? That's a very different process. You have grows, you have extraction facilities, you have possibly dispensaries that can actually provide that. With psychedelics, as they currently exist as an industry, you have something very different. You have a specific molecule. So it's not like cannabis. It's like the THC. It's the single molecule or in mushrooms, it's psilocybin. It's that one molecule. You're basically taking that molecule and you're taking it through the entire drug development process, which is typically a 10-year process and involves at least $100 million of financing that you need to raise over that period of time. Whereas cannabis brands can, with a few thousand dollars, get something off of the ground and have something that was a consumer packaged good brand that is more based on the packaging and the marketing than it is necessarily on any sort of real drug development savvy or skill. And so what we found, and I think that the problem for a lot of investors today, and what will be a problem for many investors is that the companies that they've been investing in uh, and the opportunities that have been out there have not really been run by drug development professionals. And so many of these companies don't necessarily understand what it takes to build a drug development company to last for 10 years of time and raise $100 million to be able to actually get a drug through the FDA approval process and then actually roll it out. So what we think is probably going to happen possibly during this economic crash is there's going to be a lot of the companies that were first movers in a way that are not going to be able to stand the test of time and will have to close down shop because they won't be able to necessarily open up or withstand. But we'll see how it necessarily unfolds. Maria Velkova, who's the other managing partner of the firm, she spent a decade in big pharma. So she's worked with every big pharma um, company imaginable. And so I personally rely on her heavily to be able to diligence a lot of these deals. And I, looking at every other fund in the space, I haven't seen other funds that have drug development shops like she does, for instance. And for me, it's difficult to know how diligence is approached by other teams. But I think for any investor that's going out there looking to invest in the psychedelic sector, if you're looking to go beyond technology and infrastructure and really get into drug development, then I think you need to have someone who you can really trust that can diligence those companies deeply and come back to you and say, this is just a pretty deck or a team that can talk big, or there's some real substance here and they're going to know how to play this for the next 10 years. Yeah. Yes, that is really excellent advice, Marik. And glad you have a partner who's so well-versed in that. And if we want to look a little more at what's happening with the legalization aspect of psychedelics, looking at these developments, would you say that this now is the right time to invest into the sector? 
Yeah, that's a great question. I think that there's multiple perspectives on this and it's difficult for me to say definitely do this or definitely do that. I think it's just, it depends on people's connections, the deal flow that they're seeing, their specific angle. There's a couple ways to look at it. There's continuing on with what's been built already and investing in that infrastructure. That's one kind of investment approach that you could take. A second investment approach that you could take is looking at the arbitrage opportunities of like state-by-state -state policy changes and playing a game similar to cannabis's early days. And then the third one is seeing like what is a larger theme of psychedelics that psychedelics can play a part in, but maybe don't necessarily your entire portfolio or your investment thesis is not built around psychedelics specifically, but maybe around consciousness or plant medicines of all sorts, ones that are psychoactive or not. For us, it's blind spots of the healthcare industry, because that's actually a lot of the work I was doing even before psychedelics, looking at sexual liberation and the sex workers' rights movement and how that plays a factor in health, looking at decentralized governance and how decentralized systems can actually boost health outcomes, using on multiple community-based projects and like studying how does community amplify health outcomes. So those are all, to me, blind spots of the healthcare industry, and that's kind of our bigger theme. So those three is if you're going to play the game how it's been played to date, it's a question of, have we already seen most of the first movers come through? Or are there a lot more first movers to come and open up new categories of treatment for specific ailments? What's interesting, for instance, is like MDMA is likely going to be out in the open and rolled out by the end of next year. Now, not everyone will have access, but it's very unlikely that it will not pass given the clinical data that, that has been seen. And so most individuals will be able to access MDMA-assisted therapy specifically for PTSD. Mm. That's the indication that it's gone through the FDA approval process for. And that's how all molecules go through the FDA approval process. It's one compound for one ailment. Now, what's interesting though, is once it's approved, Doctors, if they have a reason to believe that MDMA works for something outside of PTSD, they can prescribe it for that as well. So if someone comes to them and says, hey, I have depression, I think that MDMA might work for me. If there's some literature on it, if there's a reason for the doctor to believe that, they might be able to prescribe MDMA-assisted therapy for that person's depression. Yes. And there's a, let's say that MDMA is out, out by the end of 2023, psilocybin is on track to be rolled out by the end of 2024. Let's say that we just have MDMA and psilocybin by the end of 2024, and we have these first few kind of this tactogen and this psychedelic to be and then ketamine as well. There's a real question of will the compounds that are going through development yield significantly larger improvements to what these specific molecules can already offer us? And yeah, what will be the returns, the return profiles of the molecules that go through through afterwards? There are some interesting approaches that we've seen on the drug development side. Maria Volkova is really the best person to speak to those. It's completely over my head, not my world. But those are at least some of the things that we've seen. So that's a traditional route. Is the hype cycle over? Are the first movers over? Or are there still many left to be able to invest in? That's a question you need to ask and you need to be able to research and understand. And that's something that we're still trying to glean and understand from the data that we're analyzing and from how we're looking at the space. The second piece, the policy, kind of like state by state, cannabis play, arbitrage, et cetera, that is a difficult game for a lot of different reasons. We've seen it play out with cannabis and it's difficult to diligence companies because it's okay, this company is functioning in Oregon, but is it stepping outside of Oregon at any point? Does it have product that you know goes across borders in a way that is actually not legal? Will this company run into hurdles being able to have an IPO when like the big accounting firms, the big auditing firms, the big banks get involved years down the road, which we saw with cannabis? 
So those are a lot of the kind of questions you have to ask there. But there's a very real possibility that there's going to be a magic mushroom brand or a psilocybin brand that is paired with therapy. And there's going to be some sort of like right now, at least what we've seen with regards to the policy has been specifically legalizing psilocybin for therapy in Oregon. That's probably the furthest along piece that we have of legislation. And And, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I also very much appreciate your optimistic outlook on when we can expect MDMA and psilocybin to be accessible for people in need of therapies that work with these specific compounds. First of all, I'd like to ask you, what are the indicators that show you that this is moving positively into this way, for example, with MDMA, to be able to expect it by the end of 2023? Yeah, it's actually been a like marker since I got started in the space back in 2018. We've known for a while because this is all like planned. It's not like policy where you're campaigning and you're getting signatures. It's you raise the money, you do the trials. If the trials show you what they're supposed to show you, then like you have a certain time period and it gets approved, right? And so there's a much more calibrated process for the drug development pipeline as opposed to drug policy reform, which is really the game that cannabis is playing and has played. And so we knew that we would likely get expanded access in 2022. It's been basically 2022, 2023, 2024 are going to be the kind of three main years where we're going to start seeing expanded access. And we're going to start seeing the approval of these compounds because many of them have already been going through clinical trials for the last decade. We've already seen and collected all of the data necessary. And so they're in the final stages of that very formal process. And so once the data is collected, it's not about, you know, descheduling the compound. It's not about the policy. It's not about the DEA. It's just about the fact that the FDA now has the data. And now this can be actually rolled out as a health treatment. And there's really not much that can stand in its way. And so that's the really nice part about it. And there's less less optimism here than just faith in a drug approval process that works the same way, regardless of the compound you take through. It's just this time, the pioneers and the heroes of the last decade who started this research early on have done all of the groundwork to be able to have a smooth rollout. Indeed. And those are absolutely excellent developments. We're truly living in a really interesting time where access to whether it's psychoactive or non-psychoactive healing compounds are available as they've never been before in human history. If you merely look at certain herbs or also fungi out of traditional Chinese medicine that few hundred years ago, you geographically wouldn't be available, or you may have even been forbidden to take them because they were reserved for royalty. That being said, with regards to this psychedelic renaissance that we're witnessing, what's the potential path for it that you see in the next few years, and also, let's say, 10 years from now? Yeah. Um, Yeah, I think that there's a lot of, again, it's difficult. There's so many different paths to follow in a question like that of what kind of happens and what we can expect. I I think that there's going to be both good things and bad things. Just overall, I think that there's going to be just more individuals that now have access to healing that they didn't have before. I think that there's going to be a lot of progress with regards to us being able to address many different illnesses that stem from either psychology or neurology in some way, which is exciting. I think that Over the next 10 years, we're probably going to have a little bit more understanding of what's called like the Michael Pollan effect on the effects of psychedelic therapy is is the efficacy that we're seeing because 
psychedelics are so set and setting dependent is the efficacy that we're seeing more because there's just so much hype around it. And will, even if there's still efficacy to these psychedelics, will it be lower than it is today? And so that'll be a big question to ask and something that we might see evolve. I think on the kind of like negative side, I think that there's going to be a lot of individuals looking to take advantage of this boom and this renaissance and looking to use it for themselves in whatever way. I think that there's going to be really predatory business models that kind of evolve given the extremely vulnerable state that people are in during psychedelic experiences. One that I talk about is the Coke bottle in a clinic is you have Coca-Cola knowing that it can boost conversion of its products if it catches someone within the 30 minutes after their psychedelic experience. Why wouldn't they sponsor ketamine clinics or MDMA clinics or psilocybin clinics to have their products in their office and know that like they're going to get higher conversion rates because people are more open? Just hypothetical, but like those types of things. So not only more open, but there is also a state of neuroplasticity that's facilitated, for example, by a compound like ketamine. So whatever you focus on after a treatment may become more deeply ingrained. This, of course, also has the positive aspect of it. If you take a compound, let's stick with ketamine and, and then have therapy sessions right after, it will really have a great and sustainable effect in elevating your well-being and alleviating anything you may be suffering from. But this is a really great point, Marique. Yeah. Coca-Cola. Yeah. Thank you for bringing Yeah. No, definitely. Yeah. Like things like that. Yeah. Our, our job to think through and understand like what the repercussions here are. I think that there's going to be a lot of really interesting. So one last point on kind of the kind of dark side of things. I think that the other piece that we're going to see is I definitely think we're going to see spikes in bipolar and schizophrenia um, in society just with greater access, both with regards to underground use as well as use in the clinic. And I don't think that we necessarily have support systems in the United States as well as abroad to be able to help support people who have bipolar and schizophrenia. But I, I'm a big believer that as access to psychedelics grows, we're going to see spikes in those ailments. I am also of the controversial belief of the kind of Malcolm Gladwell case of cannabis access having grown and seeing spikes in those ailments as well. I believe cannabis is a psychedelic or a pseudo-psychedelic, and I think that it also can trigger those ailments. So I think that's something that we're most likely going to see too. And then I think on the social side, I think we're going to see like very interesting combinations. Like we hosted this first ever psychedelic house of Davos this year in May and got to bring psychedelics to global leaders, at least psychedelic education. But one of the biggest questions that people were asking us is like, are you going to dose Davos? Are you going to actually give our politicians psychedelics and have them do work together or whatever, or open up their minds and their hearts? And it's, it's an interesting conversation. We'll see how, we'll see how as health ministries roll out psychedelic compounds, as we have more foundations for being able to use psychedelics in group settings and actually use it for conflict resolution and things like that, there will be possibly conversations between candidates. I'm not sure if you're aware, there's already research going on between Israelis and Palestinians drinking ayahuasca together. And so this is some of the really interesting work that can be done when you have psychedelics. I tell all my friends that are thinking about having children today is that by the time that their children are adults, that they're in their early 20s, most of their kids will probably be requesting to have MDMA-assisted family therapy with their, with their parents. And my friends think I'm insane, the ones who don't work in the psychedelic space. But in 20 years of time, that is a very, there's a very high likelihood of that, is that our children will be, my generation's children will be asking them to have psychedelic sessions to be able to help their families bond better. And so... It'll be interesting to see.
Yes, and not only bond better, but we all carry some kind of a package. We all have had experiences. A lot of us have had traumatic experience and also dysfunctional experience within the family because trauma gets passed down generationally. There's some really interesting studies and fantastic scientists, for example, like Dr. Rachel Yehuda, who's focused for many decades on researching trauma and actually also working with survivors of the Holocaust and their families and seeing how this kind of trauma can affect generations further down the line, further down the family mm -hmm. line. So I think what you're saying actually does not sound crazy at all. To be able to break the cycles of hurt and trauma and make them stop with us, and maybe it's our children who will request that 10, 20 years down the road, makes total sense, as does MDMA as a potentially very good um, for couples therapy. Definitely, 100%. Yes. You actually, Marik, you have a really interesting life journey. You've worked across counterculture industries since you were, I think, since you were about 15 years old. You shared some of it before in the conversation with us. What inspired you so early on, such, at the, such a young stage of your life, to advocate for human rights? Um, yeah, so I didn't get into the counterculture stuff until probably like 22-ish when I was 22. Like 14, 15, I started getting into advocacy work though and spent like the first couple of years of my time in the disability rights movement. And then the interfaith movement was actually a really big chunk of formulating a lot of my ideas around advocacy today and how it feeds into the work that, that we do with Tabula Rasa and everything else that we're building. But the advocacy piece, I think it's it's... I don't even know if it was ever really necessarily. I think I have a very, a very deep drive to be able to help others. I definitely feel that within myself. But I think that oftentimes, like, it's more to do with doing that in the context of community. I grew up in a really strong community. I was born in the Crimea, came over to the States as, as just a baby and grew up in a community for refugees who were coming out of the region. And it was very much like everyone takes care of one another. You have garages open up on Sunday, Section 8 housing around you, and people are fixing each other's cars and selling fruits and vegetables to one another and like taking care of children and things like that. And I think I've always just been drawn to like strong community. And that's always been something that's been important to me. And so I think that a lot of the advocacy work I got involved with was like wanting to do good, but also just like seeing how advocacy could take Uh, oftentimes people's pain or injustice of some form and turn it into bonding and turn it into progress. And like those two things for me are really powerful today is like, how do we take humanity's suffering and pain and turn it into community, into connection, and then turn that connection and community into human progress? And it's just such a natural flow. And it's, it feels like in itself, like community, therapeutic through community as that process and dharma or whatever language you want to use unfold in a way. Beautiful. And in a previous interview, you had mentioned that your family has been displaced for over 100 years and that actually none of your family members were born in the same country as they died. And very clearly that has profoundly informed your own journey. And what a beautiful way of transmuting this and out of hardship, adversity and suffering, creating community and support. Something that I also found really interesting is your advocacy for sex workers' rights. And what came to my mind was that I can't help 
to think that on the one side, the oppression of sex and sexual rights and agency, and also the suppression of people exploring their own minds is connected. What are your thoughts on this? I think so much of our world is built around just like the narratives that we tell ourselves both personally and through our communities, through society. And I think that sex is probably the most powerful narrative builder that there is. It's God or consciousness or what exists beyond ourselves and then sex. Like those are the two things that define most of our narrative building. And I I think that there's just a lot, there's very much a tendency to flow towards a default narrative because the story that has been told for millennia around things like God and like sex, like consciousness, like relationships, like parenthood, et cetera, like all of these really potent things have very specific narratives that have been told over and over again. And so it's very difficult to, in many ways, move away from them or challenge them or to explore the full range of their capacity in one way or another. And I think that it's, there's a like kind of phrase that as I was talking with one of my closest friends and came up with, it's like when lines become legacy, when, you know, the boundaries of your life and where kind of the rules and things become what you pass down and you pass it down for long enough where it becomes your legacy, where you're looking at those boundaries as something that you need to manifest because it's specifically to the honor almost of your ancestry or of society or of a higher power, et cetera. And especially the narrative of sex, I think, is one that is very difficult to explore with and shift. And for instance, I think there was a like a few interesting things that came up recently in the world of like popular media. I'm trying to think of like a couple of them. There was just basically a couple individuals talking about like sex and society and especially like males relationship to sex and the like incel community and and all of these different things. And what I feel like I've noticed that's been interesting is like in, in this generation and this narrative will continue to evolve and change, but even like our trying to escape from even us trying to move towards sexual liberation, it has to be done in very specific language with very specific boundaries, especially when it comes to describing like male sexuality, but sexuality in general. And for instance, like when we talk about the desire for sex, oftentimes it's, we talk about, is it really sex that's being desired? Is it more intimacy? Things like that. When we talk about even conscious communities and sex, we oftentimes talk about the spiritual components of sex and tantra and sexual openness, but from a very specific angle. And even that in its way is like still funneling us towards an acceptable idea of sex and sexuality, a, a sex that is framed through the idea of spirituality, through the idea of companionship, through the idea of like enlightenment, almost more consciousness in a real way where I think that sex and consciousness and God and all of these things are so much broader and have the potential to be really anything that we define them to be. And I think that it'll just be interesting to see how we continue to evolve this narrative and also stay rooted in the fact that Maybe we shouldn't be taking ourselves or narratives as seriously as we are, because I think that as we take these narratives seriously, we get into the domain of the, I don't know if you've heard of like the drama or trauma triangle before. Please give us some more, an overview of this, Marie. Yeah. Yeah. So basically the drama or like trauma triangle is basically most of our human relationships slip into this triangle, especially when the stakes are high. And what the triangle is, it's basically three roles. You have 
the victim, the hero, and the villain. And so when we relate to people, when a trauma happens, our brains immediately all day, everything caricaturize individuals or two-dimensionalize the situation and basically begin to assign roles. We paint ourselves as either the hero, the villain, or the victim, and we paint the person that we're in relationship with as the hero, the villain, or the victim. And obviously this is never the case. There's never anyone who is truly a hero, truly a villain, or truly a victim. These are not roles that exist in isolation from one another. You're typically a blend of these things. And unfortunately, when the stakes are high, when the narrative is potent, we tend to slip into those dynamics and into that drama and trauma triangle in a more intense way. And when there is any sort of dynamic that creates tension in us, especially around a narrative like sex or like psychedelics, we tend to automatically paint the individuals involved as that hero, that villain, that victim when oftentimes that actually doesn't allow for us to process in any way that situation and really come to terms with it. And that then turns into complex trauma over time because we see, hey, I'm the victim, that's the villain. Oh, I had the situation again. It was similar to that. I'm the victim, that's the villain. Or I'm the villain and that's the victim. That's also a very difficult thing to move through. There's a um, incredible practitioner, Hannah McLean, who does work out of Philly and runs the Sound Mind Center. And we had a beautiful conversation years ago about how difficult it is to actually process the PTSD that's formed from actually identifying yourself as the villain in a situation and being convinced that you are the oppressor, the perpetrator, and how much trauma that actually creates for the person themselves and how difficult it is then to heal and the spiraling that occurs afterwards. And so each one of these roles comes with significant pain and makes it more difficult for us to process our traumas and just build a better world together. And when we have really potent narratives around sex and psychedelics and God and religion and things like that, and we are convinced that this is the way that we must see it, that this is the narrative that must unfold, those dynamics play out. And then we're not able to process our own traumas because it's all just such a high stakes game. And what strikes me is that, for example, when we talk about the, the victim, perpetrator and hero roles, or also all these other narratives that these disconnect us from the whole right? And that's where a lot of our ailments come from. And when we are able to connect back to the whole, that's where healing can also happen. And that's also where healthy relationships can happen. And to take this conversation into a slightly different direction, but that's also related to it. I always found interesting that when what we're taught in our culture about being entrepreneurs has been tied to a very specific narrative for quite a long time. And that narrative is now opening up and shifting. And what I found really interesting about your story and some of the things that you have activated is, for example, you have hosted psychedelic retreats at Yale, right? I read that you guided 10% of the Yale MBA population on psychedelic retreats. Can you tell yes. us? So it wasn't at Yale. It was with 10% of the Yale student body. Won't speak too much about how or where it happens, but that was something that we conducted when I was there, when I was studying there. Yeah, it was a humongous learning experience. Just really, I think, taught me a lot and foreshadowed a lot of what I would see within the psychedelic sector as I was contributing to building it. I think that it was something that, yeah, I'm just very grateful for that experience. And I think that a lot of the people who joined us on those experiences are extremely grateful to have had that opportunity. But especially for myself, I just think that the amount of humility and understanding that I gleaned from trying to actually hold space in that way 
taught me that I will probably never sign up to do anything like that again, because I'm just not qualified or trained to be doing things like that. But also just like how, how important it is to be extremely like cautionary and mindful and careful and calibrated when trying to allow for individuals to, when trying to create spaces where people can be as vulnerable as they want to be, that's like a very difficult thing to do well. And I think that too many people come out of a psychedelic experience believing that, oh yeah, of course I can hold space. I like, I know how to sit for a friend and it's sitting for a friend sober and believing that you're, you can handle this or going through your own experience and seeing yourself handle it is very different than holding space for any other person, especially groups of people. And yeah. Yeah. So uh, thank you for sharing that and also sharing your insight. That's very important. And I think another important aspect of these psychedelic experiences is the community, whether it's a community with a therapist who really knows what they're doing and can be able to guide you through it, or also community in general. I think most of your psychedelic experiences were in group settings with friends and also creating, painting, writing poetry, or engaging in music. And I feel that community is something that has always driven you from your activist work to the things you are facilitating and growing now. Can you talk about how community and psychedelics actually come together and what can grow out of this potentially? Yeah, I think, and I think that there's another piece there that's really important to also not disregard is the process of creation with community. I think that it's one thing to spend time and talk with friends and just hang out. It's another thing to be able to create together. And I think when we create together, there's something really incredible that happens oftentimes, which is almost the creation of a, of another entity of like a, being of consciousness that is removed from any one person, but really depends on the entire community to be able to thrive. And it's a really incredible process to see that evolve and see communal consciousness evolve. And, and I think that's most accessible oftentimes through creation. And but yeah, community in the context of psychedelics, I think there's the basics of it, which are just, we all need people who can support us. We all just need to have people who we can trust. And I think that having there's many retreats that i know that don't even that actually ask do you have a strong community waiting for you at home that can support you in integration after you get back you can go through the therapy you can integrate with a therapist but if you don't have a community that's going to support you or you can integrate with or you can live your life with in a way it's very difficult to heal to be able to process and i'm very grateful to have an amazingly supportive community around me and some of the greatest people in the world that I admire are, I'm proud to call part of my community and part of my friend group. And that's just an amazing feeling. And I think that being able to have that and have security and trust from others makes the human psyche so much more, um, so much more robust, so much more stable. It's very difficult when you have a hundred people advocating for you and believing in you and supporting you and showing you that they love you for to, to just slip away into despair, especially when, you know, there's of course things that you need to do yourself. You need to take care of your body. You need to take care of your mental health. You need to fulfill yourself through projects of passion and purpose. But when those things are fulfilled, if you have the community behind you, you go through a breakup, you go through a trauma, 
you're able to heal with the support of that community. And I also want to just touch on the creation piece again, because I think that we really discount the importance of creation. And there's research to show that like journaling and things like that are important, but I think that there's other forms of creation that are also just extremely like that I'm actually getting more and more interested in as I continue to evolve as my as a human working in the psychedelic space and having my own psychedelic experiences. I think that especially musical improv, I think is may become one of the most effective tools for, for being able to process and heal that we know of. I'm a, like many of the most healing therapeutic and spiritual experiences that I've had in psychedelic states have been improving music, even in very novice, at very novice levels. And I think that this is a theory of mine, but I think that the process of being able to create music on the spot to share your emotions and at the same time hear those emotions uh, played back to you through the sound and the vibrations of an instrument that basically signal to you the affirmation of your emotions, I think is a very important loop for people to have. And I actually think that it might even be more effective sometimes than interaction with other humans in psychedelic states, because it is such direct channeling of these are my emotions and then sound being able to reaffirm what we're actually feeling and processing. I think that's actually something I'm very interested in supporting and being more involved with is how musical improvisation paired with psychedelics can be used as a therapeutic tool. Is something, something there to mention and leave you with as well. Yes, Marik, that is really fascinating and it makes a lot of sense, especially what you just said, that while you're going through the process to have your emotions basically manifest in the form of music and then sitting with them, acknowledging them, hearing, feeling, sitting with them is a huge part of the healing process. I love that. That's a really something I hope that gets looked into much more deeply. Yeah. And when you're and when you're in a psychedelic state, the music doesn't just or the instrument doesn't just shout back the affirmation towards you. And the music actually changes the room around you. So it's not because you have the visuals as well. And so it's not it becomes more than just the instrument. It becomes the entire room that you're sitting in, all the people in that room, like everything becomes part of the affirmation that you are seeking. And uh, I think that affirmation and that cycle, like letting the paintings change, the windows change, the walls change, the sounds change as a result of your emotions. Yeah, is just, uh, yeah, has been uh, truly probably, yeah, the most important experiences for my own healing, sometimes even in sober states, more so than even in psychedelic states. And so I'm very passionate about that specifically. Fantastic. And it really combines community and creation in such a beautiful way. I also feel that community and creation is really at the core of the psychedelic renaissance that we're witnessing. It is about healing ourselves, healing our communities, and moving towards a humanity 2.0. Marik, um, thank you for everything you're doing in that space. And thank you for sharing your experiences, your thoughts, and your wisdom with us today here on Gateway Sessions. For people who'd like to learn more about you or connect with you, how can they do so? Feel free to sign up to our newsletter at either tabularasa.ventures, energia.co, energiafoundation.org. I'll provide links to all of those. Those are all the entities or venture firm or holding company, our nonprofit. And uh, yeah, that's probably the best way, just staying up to date with our newsletter and everything that we're sending out there. And uh, feel free to send me a ping. You can find my email pretty easily online if you're interested in getting involved. 
Super. And we'll make sure to put all of that in the show notes. Marik, thank you so much for joining us today. It's really been a pleasure. Ariana, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Gateway Sciences, leading the human race to inner space.